All right, welcome to the conversation on the TYT Network. Uh, well, while we're all paying attention to coronavirus, the Republicans, and specifically Republican judges, and yes, they are Republicans, uh, even though it's, oh, I just call them balls and strikes, um, are uh, busy trying to take away our rights. So uh, we're bringing in Jay Willis to talk about that. He's a senior contributor at The Appeal, and he's written about this uh, recently. Jay, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No problem, brother. All right, so uh, Jay, let's talk Wisconsin first. Um, what are the, what are the courts doing there uh, to? Uh, I don't know if it's used this as an opportunity, but but certainly um, uh, they've had rulings here that is that could affect our rights. Yeah, well, they had uh, a tricky problem early last month uh, when the Democratic primary, regularly scheduled, uh, was set to be on April seventh. And of course, we're in the middle of a nationwide pandemic, uh, and the state was in the middle of a, a mandatory stay-at-home order. Uh, so there were a couple different responses that they rolled out to try and prevent people uh, from having to turn out in mass in order to participate in democracy. Uh, so first, you had the state's governor, Tony Evers. Uh, he issued an executive order postponing in-person voting uh, until June, I believe, uh, and in the meantime, allowing people uh, sort of expanding uh, uh, absentee ballots. He said, we'll keep sending out absentee ballots and you can keep voting that way from the safety of your home. Uh, separately, there was a federal district court judge uh, who issued an order giving folks uh, a couple more days to send in their absentee ballots. They did so because, as you might expect, uh, state officials were so overwhelmed by demand for absentee ballots uh, that they didn't get a lot of them out on time. So you had voters on election day uh, who didn't yet have their absentee ballots. Uh, but the day before the election, uh, you had two conservative courts helicopter in and throw out both of these responses. So first was the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, which ruled that Evers didn't have the authority to postpone in-person voting. Uh, a couple hours later, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, said also that, again, the very modest uh, uh, amendment here of giving voters a couple extra days to mail in their ballots uh, was also not permissible. Uh, and sort of a fun fact is they, they based their ruling on a 2006 decision uh, which says that federal, uh, lower federal courts should ordinarily not interfere with an election uh, on the eve of an election. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't see a whole lot around me uh, that qualifies as ordinary right now. Uh, but that's the justification they offered. And by doing so, the court's conservatives more or less ruled that qualifier right out of it. And so the upshot of this, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, so look, you went to Harvard Law School, you cover this for a living. Uh, you, there's this fiction that the uh, judges and the justices are um, don't take politics into account. Now, that's absurd. Uh, Gore v. Bush absolutely shattered that uh, if anyone believed it in the first place and then it's been 20 years since then and uh, and this happens all the time um, so do you think that if Bush then delays the election the Supreme Court that ruled that you cannot delay elections would turn around in six months and say of course you can delay elections God bless President uh, Trump I mean I I agree with you like there is there is no sense anymore in which uh, we had these reactionary courts, especially those uh, especially run by Trump-appointed judges, 
who are operating above the political fray. Like there is this traditional conception that, you know, you get taught in eighth grade civics uh, that judges are just interpreting the law. As you alluded to, Chief Justice Roberts said, they call, call balls and strikes, right? But it's not less political to interpret law than it is to make law as a legislator or to enforce the law as an executive. And what we've seen here is courts sort of abuse that tradition, conservative courts abuse that traditional conception uh, to further conservative ideology and promote Republican politics. Yeah, and I don't know what your point of view on it is, Jay, but but I think both sides have been doing it, but but not right now. I think that they switched. I, I think the liberal justices uh, interpreted the law very liberally uh, in the 60s and 70s, and, and now the conservatives are like, oh, yeah? Uh, and I don't know that it's an oh, yeah. It's just a matter of power, right? Uh, they're in power, and they're saying... Well, look at that. States' rights. Did we say states' rights? Uh, no, Florida can't count their own votes. Sorry. Don't believe in state rights. Don't care. Uh, we're all giant hypocrites. And every once in a while, there'll be an aberration, and John Roberts will, uh, you know, uphold the Affordable Care Act, kind of. And then people will say, oh, kind of. yeah, yeah, very kind of. Uh, you see, they're neutral. No, it's extraordinary because one justice once kind of upheld. A democratic law, thereby showing that the exception proves the rule that you expect the conservative judges to rule with the Republicans no matter what, almost as if they don't give a damn about the law. I mean, yeah, the 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 days of having a Supreme Court justice appointed who diverges from the sort of political beliefs of his or her appointing president, those are over. Uh, the the justices that are appointed by Democratic presidents tend to uh, tend to take liberal positions, and the uh, justices appointed by Republican presidents uh, toe the conservative line. Uh, the more political an issue, uh, the more predictable uh, sort of those traditional party splits are going to become. Yeah, in Wisconsin and, and throughout the country, it just happened to be the case in Wisconsin. Uh, the Republicans don't want more people voting. Um, so I, I get, look, we know this, we've covered this on the show many times, uh, and, and even Donald Trump, because he's so unsophisticated, just blurted out, um, it, it, we can't allow mail-in voting because then Republicans will never win another election. Uh, so we, we know that Republican politicians believe that, and tr like I said, Trump just said it out loud. He's amazing. Um, but how do the judges live with themselves? I know this is more of a, like a philosophical question. But do you, do you, is your sense that the conservative judges really believe the nonsense uh, where they twist the law into saying, no, I mean, less votes is good. Of course. You know, we shouldn't have mail-in voting because I'm neutral. No, no, it's just my interpretation of the law. Or do you think they're like, yeah, I don't want Democrats winning. I don't care what the law is. I'm going to twist it in any direction I like to make sure that less people vote. I don't know that... I don't know that conservative judges and justices take quite such a frank approach to it, maybe as politicians do, but like being generous to them. I do think that's subconsciously part of this is they are out to protect the Republican Party and again, promote conservative ideology. And in Wisconsin, the way to do that is to handpick the electorate. Uh, the statistics from 2018 in Wisconsin are 
astonishing. Uh, gerrymandering there has functionally destroyed conservative, uh, excuse me, representative democracy. Uh, I believe it's something like 200,000 uh, Democratic candidates for the state house received 200,000 more votes in 2018 across the state and yet received 27 fewer seats in the state house. Uh, that's not uh, that's not democracy in any fair sense of the word, I don't think. Uh, but when you have judges who are willing to uh, take this strictly formalist approach and just say that they're applying rules uh, instead of thinking about the real world consequences, uh, this is what you get. I will note that both the U.S. Supreme Court and the Wisconsin Supreme Court took great care in their opinions to say, we are not passing judgment on the policy, the, the wisdom of holding an election. Uh, but the law simply says that we can't allow this. And that's just not true. The law is ambiguous. There's no, there's no case law for dealing with a pandemic. We've never, like fortunately in this country, we've never had, to, had the chance to have that kind of uh, case law develop. What this moment requires is judges to be flexible and to, and to allow governors to, and judges to make these decisions. And you're seeing conservative judges just not willing to do that. Jay, as tough as you are in your writing about them and pointing out the things that are true, I mean, uh, I don't think you go nearly far enough. Uh, so it's uh, all so, oh, we're just uh, we have to do what the law says. No, wait a minute. Uh, conservatives generally defer to the executive branch. They certainly do at the federal level. And all of a sudden they say, oh, executive branch, Tony Evers, the governor setting the rules. No, screw the governor. Uh, we're taking over. OK, I believe that's called activist judges. Uh, and then they throw out the word ordinarily out of the legislation. Again, activist judges. They're monumentally full of crap. They love the undemocratic process by which Republicans get elected at a far greater rate while getting less votes. Uh, if you had any care about democracy or the rule of law, you would not love that. Anyway, last thing, because we're running very short on time here. We did mention Texas. Uh, we've talked about it a little bit more on the show. That's why I saved it a second. So real quick, uh, how are they trying to take away abortion rights uh, in Texas during this emergency? I mean, it's exactly the point to which you just alluded. So uh, Governor Greg Abbott issued an executive order postponing procedures, I believe the phrase was, that are not uh, immediately necessary or something to that effect. Uh, and the next day, the, the state attorney general put out a press release that said, Oh, by the way, uh, abortion is included in that. Uh, this is functionally uh, an abortion ban in Texas. This was early last month. Uh, federal district court said, no, 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 no. This is uh, banning abortion is not rationally related to containing the spread of coronavirus. Uh, but two Republican appeals court judges, uh, uh, they uh, overturned the lower court. And they said, we have to defer in this case uh, to the Texas governor's uh, decision that limiting uh, surgeries and procedures is essential. Uh, so again, these these uh, the results in Wisconsin and Texas, those aren't reconcilable, right? On the one hand, you have a governor saying, we need to postpone in-person voting, and a court saying, that is beyond the scope of your authority. And then on the other hand, in Texas, you have a governor saying, we need to functionally ban abortion in this state, and a, an appeals court saying, well, that's if that's your choice, that's not our, our role to second guess it. Yeah. Oh, what can we do? It's the executive branch. What could I do? Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> and again, they're monumentally full of crap. Uh, the guys who said, oh, my God, it's overregulation. That's the problem with Democrats. 
even before coronavirus, were like, okay, we need to regulate the size of the hallways of these clinics and if they have the right permits from nearby hospitals. Now they're using coronavirus as an excuse. Before the uh, interview started, Jay and I were talking about he's from the state of Washington where murder hornets have now showed up. Uh, so buckle up, get ready for that. It'll be like, oh, the murder hornets are here. Obviously, we can't do abortions. Okay, with murder hornets out there buzzing around, uh, we got to protect people and make sure we ban abortions. So it's dispiriting. And I guess, you know, nonetheless, I'm glad that they have not given up this mythology that the courts are neutral, because maybe that marketing could lead them back in the right direction one day. <laughs> but right now, it certainly is is not where the courts are. And so Jay writes about that in the appeal. Check it out. And thank you for joining us, Jay. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. On the conversation on the Young Turks Network, uh, Shahid Buttar joins us uh, again. It's great to have him here. He's running as Nancy Pelosi. And he recently uh, was one of the two people who won the runoff, the primary. Uh, one was Nancy Pelosi, the other was you. <laughs> so it, it's great to have you here. So first, let's start with that before we get into a conversation about uh, how you're planning to beat Pelosi in the runoff. Uh, who were you? Who was your main competition in the primary? Uh, obviously, Pelosi was going to make it into the top two, but uh, no Republican made it. Was a Republican your top challenger or a Democrat? The next person finishing behind me was a Republican, but frankly, Pelosi was my only competition. I mean, it was I was the leading among the progressive challengers in 2018. And so the 2020 cycle was our opportunity to consolidate support across the progressive base in San Francisco. And it was really a question of how much ground could we carve into the speaker's uh, you know, previous majority. And have you uh, seen an increase in support uh, between between 2018 and 2020? Vastly so. In fact, orders of magnitude. In 2018, I was uh, fortunate to be supported by about, uh, we had under 1,000 donors in 2018. We have 18,000 donors this year. We had 33,000 voters last month. Uh, I guess it was two months ago now, at the beginning of March, cast votes for us. And we've had thousands of volunteers plug in on the campaign. So the support this time around is frankly vastly beyond anything I've experienced before. It's very humbling, and I'm very deeply grateful to the thousands of people that are fueling our campaign and extending it across the city. Now, uh, there's still a long way to go uh, because you know uh, she had a vast, vast uh, lead on you, uh, even so, in the primary. What were the numbers? It was rough. I mean, we were hoping to come in closer to 20, 25%. We got 13% of the vote to Pelosi 72, which is to say we have to double our vote count twice between now and November. And thankfully, we have a chance to do that. We've got six months left in the race. And while the pandemic, frankly, did punch a hole in our field plan, we can't do events, we can't knock on doors, uh, we have pivoted to the phones. And we've got hundreds of people on the phones for us now. We anticipate that phone banking community expanding into the thousands between now and November. And as the cycle proceeds, I think there will be a great many Americans, we've seen this already in the last few weeks, outraged and frustrated at not having an outlet for our electoral aspirations. And particularly with Bernie Sanders' position in the presidential race shifting, a lot of voices around the country are flocking to our campaign, recognizing the opportunity to vindicate the movement for a humane future by removing 
the architect of the corporate Democratic Party. How's the press treating you? Better than I'd hoped. You know, the San Francisco Chronicle is the local paper of record. They did a um, very uh, positive story when we first launched a year ago. They covered us again just in the last few weeks, particularly in the wake of the pandemic, specifically highlighting the way that we pivoted from voter outreach to mutual aid, just trying to respond to the community's needs. We put together information that summarized how people could get, for instance, access to food if groceries were challenging or how they could qualify for different benefits. And then we just started calling first our volunteers and then voters, not to promote our campaign, but just to make sure people knew where they could access those services. And we had an opportunity to donate some supplies to different groups, you know, worked with a food bank on one afternoon. So just those uh, mutual aid efforts were what the Chronicle covered that time. And outside the local paper of record, you know, we've been profiled by, in addition to your outlet, which I very much appreciate, Jacobin, Salon, The Progressive, Jewish Currents, Current Affairs, uh, a number of those outlets. And even The New York Times and The Washington Post and The Hill have quoted me, albeit only in passing. And, you know, frankly, I'd love for them to actually focus on our campaign and uh, discuss the alternative that we present the voters. But I'm relative to 2018 when I got no uh, appearances in any of those outlets. I'm very grateful for that attention. Okay, well, that's positive because, unfortunately, it's impossible to win without the press. Um, and uh, it, any chance that uh, Pelosi is going to agree to debate you? That Well, I'm looking forward to debating her. And I, if she shows up for work, she will. It has been 30 years since she debated a challenger. And some might describe that as an abdication. The very first responsibility of an elected official, someone auditioning for public office, is to defend your record. And frankly, Speaker Pelosi's record is indefensible. I think that's one reason she might not show up to defend it. Uh, I think another is simply that her team knows that if she were to try to show up to defend her record, it would be an unfortunate event for her campaign because it would be between her record being indefensible and our critique being both very grounded in fact and unfortunately uh, sharp. You know, I wish that she had done a better job over the last generation showing up for San Francisco's values, but San Francisco hasn't had a voice in Congress fighting for our city's values in over a generation. Uh, you know, For instance, there's a housing crisis here and it predated the pandemic. Ilhan Omar has a bill to cancel rents and cancel mortgages. Nancy Pelosi does not support it. And in some respects, that shouldn't surprise us. She's a wealthy landlord. Of course, she doesn't support a measure to cancel the rents. But going back before the pandemic, this affordable housing crisis that we had going back years was one in which Nancy Pelosi was demonstrably complicit. The federal spending on affordable housing collapsed over the prior generation. And whether we look at it through housing costs, whether we look at it through peace and justice, whether we look at it as defending human rights uh, or defending immigrant rights, on none of those issues has Nancy Pelosi proven helpful and defensive of our city's interests. The fact that she's so allied with the Beltway and with Wall Street is why we're going to replace her in November. Shahid, what do you mean she's a wealthy landlord? So Nancy Pelosi is worth over $100 million. She earns uh, over a million dollars a year in rent. And as a renter who owns no property, I'm an immigrant to this country, I don't have a family legacy. You couldn't pick two figures on opposite sides of the socioeconomic continuum. And on the one hand, I've been very fortunate to enjoy any number of privileges. You know, I had a chance to study and teach briefly at Stanford Law School 20 years ago. Uh, in addition to those educational privileges, I've had a chance to lead nonprofits and work at some very other prolific ones like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, but I'm not a wealthy person by any stretch. I don't own anything. 
And, and Nancy Pelosi was born with a silver spoon in her mouth to a politically powerful family on the East Coast. Her principal qualification for Congress when she ran for the seat she's occupied ever since was that she was a Democratic Party fundraiser. You know, I've been an issue advocate for 20 years. I was one of the first advocates in the country promoting marriage equality, the right of consenting adults to marry a partner of their choice. Speaker Pelosi was 10 years later for that fight. I fought the surveillance state, which she has architected. I've tried to defend human rights that she has been complicit in eroding. And on all these different issues, unfortunately, I see the interests of a city that has long privileged not just the underdog, but rights, liberties, civil rights, human rights. These are the interests that Speaker Pelosi hasn't seen fit to represent. And whether we attribute that to her class interest or we just attribute that to the fact that she's been in Congress for 30 years and, you know, seems not to feel uh, the need, for instance, to debate challengers, that degree of entitlement, I think, is unfortunate, especially given what so many Americans are grappling with right now. It is a struggle for millions of Americans to pay their housing costs, to put food on the table, to go to work, you know, without getting sick and putting their families at risk. And, you know, Congress isn't showing up for these issues. And I, and I do think it's fair to consider uh, if these policies might be different were the Democrats not led by someone who is themselves part of the 1%. So um, the press uh, has apparently done a good job of covering you, which is great, or at least is the beginning of, a, of covering you. Um, and, and usually they don't cover uh, progressives in any positive light. They usually bury them. So it's, it's refreshing to hear that uh, that hasn't happened as much. Um, uh, on the other hand, uh, they are smitten with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, I, I cannot mm -hmm. criticize Nancy Pelosi in any forum without not Democrats, but members of the press jumping down my throat and saying, how dare you? And the, their main thing that they say is, well, I don't know what you guys are talking about. She's the most wonderful progressive that they've ever seen. She rips right. out papers better than anyone else. She claps better than anyone else. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so if there's anyone else in the press watching this, a national media reporter who just can't believe how unreasonable you are uh, demanding all of your purity tests, et cetera, what, what would be the case you would make uh, to them for why she is not a good representative of the progressives of that district? Nancy Pelosi governs a lot like Donald Trump. She governs by theater and photo op. And the, the I don't think governance is an adequate, um, you can't replace governance with theater. Theater is not an adequate substitute for governance. And ripping up a speech or pointing sternly across a table or putting on her sunglasses sternly as she walks out of an office wearing her red coat, uh, you know, all of these are, are photo ops effectively. And as her constituent, I would much rather someone show up with votes, right? I'm not interested in her photo ops. I want someone who's gonna vote against the Patriot Act, someone who's gonna vote to stop the Iraq war, someone who's gonna vote to cancel the rent, someone who's gonna vote for Medicare for all, someone who's gonna vote for the Green New Deal. She doesn't support any of those things. You know, she's part of the continuing cover up into CIA torture. She refused to impeach President Bush. With President Trump, she waited a year and then limited the impeachment inquiry. The reason Trump is still in office is because Speaker Pelosi showed up for the impeachment struggle like a prize fighter throwing a fight. And I don't say this as a Monday morning quarterback. I wrote the case a year before she showed up explaining how to bring Trump down. And the key is to impeach him for corruption. And she never did it. She affirmatively refused to allow corruption to be part of the impeachment inquiry. Why? Could be because it's a bipartisan offense. 
but the point of the matter here is that she did not bring the charges that would have been successful. And, and I see every one of Trump's litany of crimes against our republic as ones in which she is also culpable, not only because she failed in the impeachment process, but you know, let's just expand the zone here. She supports Trump's corporate trade policy. She supports Trump's military budget. She supports Trump's foreign policy and the right-wing coups in Venezuela and Brazil and Bolivia in the last year alone. She funded Trump's concentration camps. Pelosi unilaterally imposed the PAYGO rules. That's a GOP method of fiscal accounting that undermines progressive spending on health and human services and disproportionately advantages military industrial corruption, which Speaker Pelosi is also thoroughly complicit in. There's never been a war that she hasn't voted uh, to fund. You know, I see, unfortunately, the divergence between Speaker Pelosi's rhetoric and reality as disqualifying. And to the press people who you know might not understand it, the people who are hoodwinked by the partisan spin, I would go back to their own interests. And government transparency is a value in which many journalists, at least the ones who understand the values of their profession, that they value. And Nancy Pelosi is the figure in the House who has imposed the set of House rules that deny most members of Congress access to the staff with security clearance that they would need to conduct independent oversight of the executive branch, which is to say Nancy Pelosi is an agent of the same executive secrecy that had NSA surveillance from the American public, that hid CIA torture from the American public, that hides who knows what crimes of the Trump administration from us even today. When you have a congressional leader who is supporting the executive branch, particularly what's an ex executive branch led by a Republican aspiring tyrant, that is absolutely unacceptable, particularly in the seat representing America's most progressive city. See, I have a wild theory on why uh, she might not want to bring up corruption or support some of those right-wing uh, policies that you mentioned. Uh, $720 million in campaign donations over the course of her career. Uh, call me crazy. Uh, but by the way, the press does. The rest of the national press says, no, $720 million would never affect anyone. Right. But good reporting. Makes sense. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're, we're out of time. So uh, last two questions are super quick. Yeah. Uh, where can people uh, reach you? Uh, and do you also have $24,000 worth of freezers? <laughs> uh, folks can find us online at shahidforchange.us. I live with a roommate in the Haight-Ashbury. I have one bedroom in a two-bedroom apartment. You know, our, our kitchen is the what used to be the add-on to the back of our apartment. So, no, I don't have a fancy kitchen. You know, I don't have a dishwasher. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, you know working class American, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the chance to represent our movement as I seek the chance to represent our city. It's always great to be with you. It, it's great to be with you, but I don't know how you're going to make it into Congress without eating designer ice cream, but okay, <laughs> to each his own. <laughs> Thanks for joining us again. We appreciate it. Thank you, Chuck.